a really interesting project that again I'm not not on I just do the the dog stuff and I'm I'm helping out on the side with some meerkat research right now too so oh that sounds like fun yes yes it is it is very neat uh looking at meerkats and uh one population of them have um cardiomyopathy and the other I say population but there's like five of them that have cardiomyopathy and you know four or five of them that don't and we're looking for genetic differences very small sample set. Hmm. yeah but a very small sample set so that one's that one's challenging but we're doing what we can and that's been a popular study on the dog side the canine side of things because of the deficiencies with nutrition and the diets it's been kind of a huge uprising i know i remember when it started kind of with the lamb diets and then it moved into kind of the grain-free diets and all of the issues that they were finding in regard to um, how it was affecting their heart uh, more than anything but uh, um, maybe some genetic relation to that right there i think i think people think there is because it's that seems to be more prevalent in golden retrievers and so if you Mm -hmm. see it in a particular breed then you know that there's some sort of some sort of genetic thing going on. Um, but I don't think anyone, I haven't seen any research that has really come to grips with that yet. So I think it's still quite up in the air. Gotcha. Well, um, I'd love to dive right into some genetics questions. Um, one of the things that I definitely want to ask you about in particular with your opinion, uh, in regard to spaying and neutering. Now, Um, you are a part of a cooperative to kind of help provide resources to breeders for integrity of the breed, you know, making sure that animals are behavioral and healthfully sound. And I think that is such a fantastic project. I'm going to put a lot of information about how to access those resources in the show notes and so people can check out what you're doing in regard to that foundation because it's fantastic. But, um, you know, you have these kind of two divided worlds where you've got the shelter population, and I understand you have experience with shelter medicine, um, and then you have the, the the breeder world. And those two worlds often don't integrate well. Um, coming from rescue, I was in rescue for many, many years, and it was always we're going to spay and neuter as early as possible, no matter what, because we have such a massive overpopulation problem that that's that's enemy number one and that's what we have to look at, that's our priority. From the breeder perspective of things, obviously that's not the case, there's a lot of differences there. And so I found myself in nonprofit and humane education trying to teach that not all breeding is the same, that we there is a place for breeding um, when it comes to integrity of the breed. And in one of our programs in high schools, we actually f- used to focus on teaching the difference between responsible breeding and backyard breeding. So. Mm-hmm. Now we're starting to see this shift um, where there's a blending of those two worlds and where it's possible and where it's appropriate that the recommendations are, even if they're coming from uh, a rescue type situation, not to alter the animal until they're sexually mature. So they get, Mm -hmm. as a female, one full heat cycle or as a male all the time for those hormones to flush through the body in a natural cycle before we alter them in any way, shape or form. Um, I actually reached out to a, a Boceron breeder recently. Um, I'm thinking about getting another dog. Don't tell my rescue friends. Um, all of my dogs are rescues, but um, she in particular doesn't allow altering of her dogs until they're at least three years of age. So I would love to get your input on this, especially from a genetic perspective as to what the overall recommendations are. So when you take away the fluff of the overpopulation, I don't mean fluff, but when you take that problem out of the equation and you look at the true health of the animal and the true genetics and the makeup of the animal, what is your advice in particular when it comes to spaying and neutering? Yeah, right. So exactly. Separating it into two separate problems, right? So the overpopulation problem is, is, and we can certainly talk about that, but only looking at the individual animal and the health of the individual animal. Um, So certainly it makes a lot of sense to let an animal go through... um, to reproductively mature, right? That way their long bones are gonna be fully developed, their reproductive system is gonna be fully developed, 
um, we, you know, it, it gives a chance for them orthopedically to be much more solid. And then um, it's interesting that you, you asked me about the genetics of it. So uh, there's been uh, some studies looking at the differences in some breeds at whether spaying and neuter earlier leaves the dogs more predisposed to developing cancer or not. Um, and that's been something that's on a lot of people's minds. So there was a, a paper came out in, I think it was like late 2019, or late 2020, it was pretty, pretty recent, um, that basically pulled together a lot of the research that has been done so far and some new research. And they have this great chart where they list uh, breeds and what the recommendation is for the particular breed. Um, and what's interesting is that the breeds that are at high risk for developing cancer anyways are the breeds that there might be some effect and so it might be worthwhile to delay. The breeds that are not at high risk of developing cancer or mixed breeds, there doesn't seem to be any effect. So two things I want to say here. One is that these are only correlational studies. So just because there's a correlation between spay neuter and risk of cancer doesn't mean that when you spay or neuter your dog causes the risk of cancer to change, right? It may be that there's something else going on that the people who spay and neuter their dogs earlier or later, um, maybe people who get different types of veterinary care for their dogs that they may be more likely to take their dogs into hospitals to get them diagnosed when they have cancer. Um, so we just, we don't, we don't actually know what's going on there. Um, <clears throat> but there are people who say, you know, I just, I want to have the lowest possible risk of cancer for my dog. So I'm not going to spay neuter. Or I'm going to spay neuter later. Uh, I don't care whether it's, whether we know what the correlation is or not. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Um, and I would say that the biggest bang for your buck with reducing the risk of cancer in your dog is the genetic risk. So dogs with very high risk of developing cancer, um, some example breeds, golden retrievers, Doberman pinchers, Bernese mountain dogs, the risk of one of those dogs getting cancer is so high that if you, you know, if you want to avoid having a dog who is diagnosed with cancer young, avoid those breeds. You're going to have much better effects than delaying spay or neuter. Um, so with, with my dogs, well, I have two rescue dogs who were both altered before I got them. Um, and then I have a, a dog that I got as a puppy from a breeder and I just, he's four now and I still haven't neutered him. Um, I don't really see the need to at this point. I don't intend to breed him. Um, but he's so, it's so easy to keep weight, weight off of him. He's so well muscled and the hormones haven't been a problem for me. Um, so, but then, then I guess that sort of brings us on to the, the other question, which is the overpopulation question. Um, but so I, did you have stuff you wanted to ask though about that, that first part? Yeah. So to tackle that first, because I agree, I think we should get into kind of the overpopulation conversation. Um, wh what about things like testicular cancer? You know, you're weighing the risk factor. Is it likely? No, but is it scary? Yeah. I mean, as somebody like myself who's seen it and I've seen people lose their family members because of it, it scares me enough that I'm like, okay, once my dog has reached social maturity or sexual maturity, I want to take them off. And, um, you know, uh, so, so just give me kind of an idea of what your sentiments are in regard to that. Like, is the risk great enough? Is it not? Are we over worrying? Should we just leave well enough alone? Should we look for alternative methods? Yeah, I think we're in this weird place right now where there's no, 
there's no really solid recommend recommendation like there used to be, right? Like, so the, the most recent recommendations are sort of like, well, wait until the dog, as you said, wait until the dog has, if it's a female, has gone through its heat cycle, or if it's a male until they've become fully reproductively mature. And I think at that point, it's sort of everyone's choice. And I, I'm not sure that I have a strong recommendation one way or the other. If you have a dog, you know, if you're concerned about testicular cancer for some reason, if you have a dog where you know that other members of the dog's family have gotten it, um, that would be a good reason to neuter. If you wanted to wait, I mean, cancer tends to be something that happens later in life. So if you wanted to wait until the dog was five or eight and then neuter, I'm going to be interested to see what happens when my intact male is older, whether I then decide to neuter him. Um, you know, prostate cancer would be the other thing that you would would worry about. Um, on the other hand, you know, like it feels a little weird to say this body part should get cancer. So I'm going to cut off the body part, right? Like it's something that, that it's, we, we think of testicles as pretty disposable at that point, but that's, that's our perception because we've been spaying and neutering for so long. And if you go talk to people in Europe, they don't remove them as regularly and they are much more comfortable with some of these risks. Um, so I think it's just, we as a society are going through this, this change right now, right? Where we're figuring out like what, what are we going to start feeling comfortable with? What are the risks that we want to take? What are the risks that we don't want to take? And I suspect that in the end, it's going to be much more, unfortunately, of a decision that each person will have to sort of talk through with their veterinarian and decide what's right for them and their dog um, and what their dog's risks are. As opposed to this just blanket spay-neuter at six months, which was a lot easier, right? To just mm -hmm. be like, this yes. is what this is what I, as a responsible owner, do. I don't have to think about it. I just spay-neuter at six months, no worries. Um, and but dipping into your love, that is, that's kind of population management right there at its finest, right? We, we have a protocol, we have a guideline, and this is just what yeah. we do. They come in, they go out, and there are no questions asked. And now later on down the road, we're like, wait a minute, should we be doing this? You know, should we yeah. not? Um, and I, I know that a lot of veterinarians in particular really struggle with that. I mean, I was just doing a relief uh, shift at a hospital not a couple months ago, and the, um, the, the attending veterinarian was doing surgeries that day, doing spays and neuters that day. And it was, a I think like a 15 week old kitten or 14 week old kitten or something, but it was underweight. It was petite. It was like run a uh, run to the litter mm -hmm. and they were really going back and forth and just really struggling with whether they wanted to mm -hmm. alter this animal. Mm -hmm. it, it was a spay. I mean, it's an open abdominal surgery and mm -hmm. I think testicles are a little easier, but, um, <laughs> but having to c connect with the rescue organization and say, listen, I, as a physician, I'm really uncomfortable with this, but, but the fact that that poor veterinarian was so uncomfortable even in doing so, you know, like listen to your gut, listen to that reasoning. So yeah, let's get into, let's get into shelter politics a little bit here. Like, do you think that we are doing damage to the population? Um, you know, obviously we're trying to control a population because there's this, there's way too many homes. There aren't enough homes available for all the animals in need, but, um, the, I think it's a lack of follow-up process more than anything else to where I think the shelter, the shelters now have this information, but they can't risk, um, you know, the, the animals that they send out into the world contributing to overpopulation because they don't have enough resources to follow up with every single one of these owners mm -hmm. to make sure that this is actually happening, that they're actually getting altered at two years of age or what have you. That's such a big risk for them. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge topic. Um, so for shelters in parts of the country where there's still pet overpopulation, I think it makes very good sense to continue to do pediatric neuters, space spay neuters, right? 
I um, did my shelter medicine internship my first year out of vet school in uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. And there's still a lot of animal overpopulation in the deep south. And we knew that when we adopted animals out of the shelter, that if they were not spayed and neutered, leaving the doors, it was very unlikely that they would be. Um, and that's a lot of that was because of the culture around there, that spay and neuter was not as big a deal. Like it wasn't as ingrained. But then come back to my home in New England, and it's a very different situation here, right? So first of all, if I adopt out an unneutered animal out of a shelter in New England, the chances that someone is going to spay and neuter it around six months or a year, very high, right? The chances that even if they don't spay and neuter it, that they'll let it sort of run wild and either impregnate someone or become impregnated, those chances are pretty low, although that is something that happens much more commonly in the South that they, you know, that an animal would be unsupervised and able to um, go have dates, right? But in New England, uh, we have this culture of almost too much, you know, helicopter parenting of our dogs. And so like, you know, my, my intact male, I have no concern that he's going to go find a girlfriend and, and get her knocked up because I know where he is at all times. Um, So, so different parts of the country, different, right? And it's, and it's also interesting that in New England, there are not enough dogs for homes, right? So if in New England, my intact male were to get someone pregnant and I were to find out about it, we would have no trouble finding homes for those puppies. And we wouldn't be taking homes away from shelter animals. People are lined up in New England waiting for shelter animals. It is, it is still not like that yet in other parts of the country, but the statistics show that they are, they are getting there, right? So in New England, we are importing massive numbers of animals from the South in order to fill our shelters. And it's already starting in some parts of the South to be the case of, but are you, you know, we don't, we could adopt some of these animals that we're sending up to you here. Like we'd, we'd almost rather keep these animals and adopt them out here. Um, but we're sending them up to you as part of the bargain of getting some of the other animals out, out the door. Um, so the, the overpopulation problem is kind of an interesting one as well. Yeah. And and it's interesting that you mentioned location being a variable because I'm, I am in the deep South. Well, not deep, but it is, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina and, um, it's a pretty pretty progressive city for the most part, as is Raleigh kind of over on the East coast. But even in my neighborhood, like people just let their dogs out, let them wander Mm -hmm. around, let them roam, you know, that kind of thing. And so we are even just locationally speaking at a higher risk for contributing to the overpopulation problem that and this area is well known for having a ton of backyard breeders. So we're looking at people that are looking to turn a buck, not, you know, reserve the integrity of the breed. And it's a, it's a massive problem here. And so, um, it's good that we're able to, to send some animals up North to, um, alleviate some of that here, but until kind of the root cause of the situation changes. So, I mean, I, I guess ideally different programs for different locations, right? So in an area where you are, where you can kind of control the system and people are, are helicopter parents or umbrella parents, as you say, mm-hmm. you know, the likelihood of them contributing to overpopulation is low. So it would be okay to contract them out further. Say, you can adopt this animal under these circumstances that you will agree to them within a two year period. And that's very likely to happen. Whereas down here, that's not. So it, you know, it's, it's definitely different as far as what you can really reinforce and what you can't and kind of running that risk of health versus overpopulation. Now I, I would be curious to see if programs began to become implemented based on breed, like you were talking about before. So breeds that are more genetically predisposed to different cancers, like perhaps giving them kind of a, you know, a pass, so to speak, like, oh, we're adopting out golden retrievers or 
you know, Cavalier King Charles Spaniels and, you know, out of a specific mm -hmm. rescue group or a specific shelter. So maybe flagging those breeds as here's why we're choosing for this, this animal in particular to recommend a later alteration mm -hmm. rather than an earlier alteration. Yeah, for sure. I think that could make a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, so, and, and shelters, I think are starting to assess the policies up here, right? Like it's, it's not unheard of here for an animal I sit here in New England. It's not unheard of here for an animal to be adopted out young with the intention of people neutering them later. Like we were sort of more comfortable doing that than other parts of the country might be. So yeah, again, having to make your decisions and not having a blanket um, policy. Yeah, it's tough, but I think it's important for people to know from an educational perspective. So no matter where in the country you are in a clinic, when someone walks into your, your practice and says, well, the Humane Society neutered my 16 week old kitten and, you know, they can have a conversation with them. Okay. Well, here's, here's, you know, what you need to know about that. Or, you know, they neutered my, you know, two month old golden retriever puppy. Okay. Well, here's some of the things that we need to discuss and how you can prepare for that. Or they didn't tell me that I had to, here's what you need to know. And perhaps we can push this out a little bit further just for the overall health of, of your animal. Yeah. And knowing yeah, kind I of think, what those three yeah. differences are too. Yeah, I think, I think so. And I think also not, not panicking about the link between cancer and spay neuter. It is, it's really not, the causation there is not proven. It's not, um, it's not a large part of your animal's cancer risk, basically. So I think if you adopt an animal and it was spayed or neutered young, um, I would, you know, orthopedically, I'd make sure to keep the animal from getting too fat and I would um, make sure that they were in shape and cancer wise, it, it is what it is. And I would not panic about it. Like it's, it's, it is certainly not a death sentence. It doesn't, it doesn't mean they're going to get cancer. Right. Well, and we are already pushing out their lives. Like it's interesting to know the difference between wild dogs and what their lifespan is versus our domesticated companions that were, you know, depending on the breed, 15, 16, 17, 18 years with them. It's, it's quite yeah. a difference. Yeah. yeah. So I do want to get a little bit more into breeding too. Um, I think that this can provide some really good education for um, staff members to be able to present to clients too. Um, but you are the founder of the Functional Dog Collaborative, which is providing a, a, an insane amount of resources. I had so much fun going through your website and reading through everything you. that you guys are offering. I was like, oh, I need to read more. Oh, I need to read more. But um, in particular, a couple of things that you address that I think are really interesting are um, crossbreeding. Um, and then kind of some of the complexity in genetics and, and understanding why outsourcing and kind of crossbreeding is, is an aid to that and why the diversity in the population is so important. So some of the problems that you'll see, um, you know, I, I love talking about designer mutts um, because, you know, I'm so used to people coming in and being like, look at my burner schnoodle do. And I'm like, you're a mutt. <laughs> um, but there are really positive benefits to having mutts and um, some of the things that you cover at least on the website with the functional dog collaborative collaborative are um, what those benefits are and why even with purebred dogs sometimes a crossbreed or outsourcing um, can be really important to the population and overall the genetic health in in reproduction yeah and outcrossing is what we say rather than um, outsourcing um, i think i think that's what you mean oh. outcrossing yeah <laughs> <laughs> We're looking at different products and manufacturers. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you are correct. Yes. That's right. 
Um, so um, a little bit about that. How does it lend a really helpful hand? Because I know some breeders are very protective of their lines and very protective of their dogs, even when they are two technically separate breeds put together into one. They become very protective of that. And your kind of argument, at least what I'm reading, is that there is some benefit um, to, uh, to expanding on that a little bit and not keeping it within the same line. Yeah. Um, well, so, I, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about, right, about um, golden retrievers and cancer. And so just being a golden retriever is this massive cancer risk. So why is that? Um, and in the, the breeds that have high risk of cancer, basically it's because, um, you know, 150 years ago, we decided all the dogs that are members of this breed, you know, we're not going to let any new dogs in ever. And this is how much genetics we have. And that, that, is, that amount of genetic diversity is then going to be lost every generation, right? Because you're not going to breed every single dog. And so now it's been 150 years, and as you've been selecting golden retrievers for lovely, sweet personality and their beautiful coat color um, and, you know, orthopedic health, selecting away from hip dysplasia, you're unfortunately starting to narrow the gene pool more and more and then come to find out some mutations increasing a risk of cancer got stuck in there and now can't be gotten out because they are probably at this at this time in pretty much all of the goldens that there are. I mean, golden retrievers develop cancer, about 60% of them, 60% of them will develop wow. cancer in their lifetimes. That's huge. Um, and so when you look at a number like that, you sort of think probably the ones that don't develop, if they lived a few more years, it's likely that they eventually would. It's just something else is getting them first, right? Um, so what do you do when the gene pool is just continually shrinking and shrinking? And we have a lot of breeds that are stuck in this situation where they sort of have been painted into a corner and now they're trying to find ways of reducing rates of this disease. So, I mean, I listed a bunch of breeds that have high incidence of cancer. Um, some of the others that we think of in these as good examples are like Doberman pinchers with their crazy high rates of heart disease. Um, and so breeders are starting to say, well, how do I, how do I outcross? Meaning how do I increase the genetic diversity? by breeding my dog to a dog that is very different from my dog. And they're trying to do that within the same breed often. So I'm going to find a dog from another country. Um, but it, it turns out that even so, we're in the situation where there just isn't that much diversity left. Um, even if you go across broad lines, so um, I, I have a friend who's a Doberman Pinscher breeder, and she has a show line dog. She bred to a working line dog. And they got much more diversity in the puppies, but then where do you go with the next generation, right? So she's going to be sort of hopping back and forth, show line to working line, but you're still going to have every other generation puppies with this really reduced diversity. So what do you do? Um, scientifically, the answer is where you start bringing in dogs from a different breed um, and you have to do it. Um, you can't just bring in one and done, you know, and expect it to sort of sprinkle out. You're going to have to do it thoughtfully, sort of periodically. It's a very different way of approaching breeding. Um, so that's what we're talking about when we talk about outcrossing. Uh, the Functional Dog Collaborative was founded as a place for people to be able to talk about some of the issues that exist in purebred dog breeding today and some of the 
alternatives, some other ways that we can go about breeding dogs that are really healthy and, uh, and functional, um, behaviorally and physically healthy. And um, it has, so we have this Facebook group as a, as a place for people to come talk about that. By the way, we just passed 4,000 members of the group this week. So that was Excellent. exciting. Um, and it has been, it's been really interesting in that people say, this is a place where I can talk about things that I'm not able to talk about on other parts of Facebook. Um, that I go other places and I talk about the problems in my breed and people come and get angry at me and say, it's my fault and I'm, I'm doing something wrong or that it's something that shouldn't be talked about publicly. Uh, and so we're really trying to make it a place where people can come and have um, open, frank discussions without other people jumping on them and yelling at them. It is a massive moderation task, um, but we work really hard to keep it friendly and inviting. I imagine so. And I, I joined the group and I was really excited to read through some of the posts, but you can see it front and center right when you sign up. Like these are our guidelines. You're going to be kind. We're here to help each other. This is the no judgment zone. And I love that you guys have that right up front. Like we're here to openly discuss these things. And sometimes they're tough topic topics for, for people to understand, but more so being a closed off group, you're away from the general population that doesn't have a clue half the time about breeding or genetics or anything that actually goes into it. They just have this right or wrong concept and they're going to throw their opinion out there. So it's nice to have kind of this collective place to, you know, pick each other's brains and, and share different information and stories about what's happening, what's not happening, some of the research that's out there. So I found that to be a pretty helpful little group. I'll put, I'll put a link to that um, Facebook group if anyone's interested in the show notes yeah. too, so they can join. Thank that. you. Yeah, yeah, we try absolutely. to be, we try to be science-based. Um, and so there's, it can be really challenging when we're talking about welfare issues in particular breeds, you know, breeds that are bred to look a certain way. And the question is whether having them look that way is a welfare issue. So the, the two that come up frequently then would be brachycephalic breeds. So dogs yes. with a really flat muzzle and it does that make it hard for them to breed and people, a lot of the people who breed them argue that the, the muzzle length doesn't have a whole lot to do with how hard it is for them to breathe. Yeah. Um, so we, we went back and forth about that recently, um, sharing, sharing papers. But at one point I had to write up uh, basically a statement saying, this is the kind of evidence we're gonna accept here. Like we accept what the scientific evidence says. We accept um, scientific articles that are peer reviewed. And if, if you are a breeder who has experience with your own dogs, then we welcome you coming and discussing that with us and talking about your experience. But please recognize that we are going to, to privilege the evidence from scientific papers higher than that. And particularly if you want to come talk about secondhand, I know this other breeder and in her line, she sees this, that's, that's really starting to get to a place where it's not evidence that is really useful for us. Um, and that's been really frustrating for a lot of people. And I, I understand that, right? Like there are people who've been working with these, these breeds for decades and feel like I come here and I'm not being listened to. Um, so that, that being able to listen to someone is, is something that we've, we struggle with and we go back and forth about, but in the end, um, sometimes we just have to say, this is what the scientific evidence is. And so that's, that's what we're going to stand behind. But that's a powerful thing. And people that are truly 
open to learn and to understand will come to an acceptance of that. I mean, you know, nobody likes anybody, you know, crapping on their favorite breeds, right? Um, I mean, I love American Football Terriers. They're my favorite dogs on the planet, but boy, do they have some issues, right? And some of it's genetic. Like we purposefully bred them to be aggressive towards other animals for quite some time. And now responsible breeders are trying to breed that out of them. Um, but at the same time to kind of say, no, these dogs that I love don't have this, this trait, this characteristic that we have built into them would be just ignorant. So um, to say, you know, that a brachiocephalic dog doesn't have, uh, isn't, you know, at a higher likelihood for heat stroke because of its basic anatomy, like th there are facts, there's science to back that up. So it, it's one thing to have a love for your breed, but it's another thing not to understand or, or be able to accept the evidence. So I think it provides a really powerful platform for people to be able to open their minds up a bit where because it's non-judgmental, because it's more comfortable, because they can have those difficult conversations, I think they're more likely to be open about that. They might they might puff their feathers up at first a little bit, but you're probably going to see some, you know, some relaxation to where they're like, oh, okay, you know, I can understand this. I can see this. I've read the papers that you've provided to me. I can see that there's scientific evidence to back this up. And I think that might be a little bit easier. And then they can go out and kind of to the real world, the real Facebook world will yeah. say, and they can spread their knowledge and information and they can handle their audiences too. So I think that's just a really powerful tool to have that's, that kind of platform. That's the plan. Thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, as I've seen both ways, right? I've seen people come and say, I've really learned a lot here. Um, and not just about the, you know, breeding for welfare, but, you know, I always thought that breeding doodles was irresponsible. And now I've met responsible doodle breeders, things like that. Um, so I've had people come and say, I've really changed my mind about things because I've been on this group. And I've had other people say, this group is not for me. And I, you know, I'm going to leave. And it's not for everyone, right? And that's one of the things that we try to say up front is, there's different ways of breeding dogs. Um, there's this sort of mainstream way that there's lots of resources out there on Facebook and other parts of the internet for people who are breeding that way. You have a lot of resources. This is a resource for people who want to breed a different way. They don't have a lot of resources. And this is, we hope that this will be a major one for them. Well, and it's also interesting because you really are kind of starting to intertwine um, ethics and science at the same time. Obviously mm. your ethics are kind of backed up by the science, but you get into this kind of finicky gray area, I feel like. Like for example, when we're talking about some of the um, the dogs that just really don't survive on their own necessarily, like old English bulldogs I think are a good example. I've yet to meet um, a, an old English bulldog that has been able to give a natural birth. Like I've never seen it. You know, I've done, I can't tell you how many C-sections I've done on them. I, I couldn't count to save my life, but we, you know, just, just thinking about what we've done to animals in this, you know, selective breeding, like you start to question, like, is this okay? Is this ethically right? Like these animals can't exist in nature on their own. You know, are we able to provide for them in a way that they don't suffer to where it makes it okay for us? You know, and then yeah. also like you had mentioned about, um, with selecting too, which I, I want to ask you about this. I'm really curious, but aside from the ethics, choosing things to breed for, like, um, you're choosing things that might be phenotypical. So things you see on the outside that affect their, their, their genotype too. So like, um, blue color coats, you know, for example, mm. you know, your breeding yeah, dilute coats. Yeah. Look. Yeah. The dilute coats, you, you want yeah. this specific look, but from my understanding, that is also linked to things that you can't see on the outside necessarily like dermatological issues, you know, mm -hmm. food intolerances, things like that. So there's kind of that crossover with ethics. Like how do you just as a geneticist, like how do you kind of, balance that so to speak yeah it's an it's it's ethics and it's 
social um, and cultural, right? So there's when, so there's a single gene that can make a coat become dilute, right? So it's, it's, it's a trait that's very easy to understand and it's a pretty color. And so people with breeds that don't have that, that particular mutation sometimes will breed it in, right? So they'll cross it to a dog that has that mutation and it, now they have um, Labrador retrievers that are dilute, right? Yeah. Um, and so then there's this pushback from the, from those breed clubs saying, we don't want to accept dilute dogs into our breed and they'll cite the related health issues. But then the question is, well, so then why is it okay to have it in Weimariners? Right? Like it's not okay in the one breed, but it is okay in the other breed, but the health issues are the same. So why is that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the kind of stuff that's, that's really hard to struggle with. And like, again, I just have to come back to, I think it, it was a couple of years ago when I decided, I first started thinking about founding this thing. And I was like, I think what I have to say is everybody has to do their own thing. And so if you feel that it is ethical and right and okay to breed dilute dogs, you do that. Um, we have for our group a very clear set of guidelines for what we support, which is that we support breeding dogs that are as behaviorally healthy and as physically healthy as the average dog. Not the average dog in that breed, the average dog including mutts. So if you are producing dogs that have uh, skin issues or rates of cancer at higher rates than is average for dogs, then you're not breeding the way we talk about breeding. We don't tell you how to get there, right? So anyone can try to get there however they want. And it's fine if you want to come on the group and say, I don't breed this way, but I still want to ask for advice. We'll provide the advice. But we just provide these guidelines. This is, this is what we think is ethical. Breeding things that are on the healthy side. Yes. Yeah. You know, and this is what we're trying to support and educate people to go towards. But we're not going to shame or harass the people who do it the other way. We're just going to provide the same education and see where that gets them. Yeah, and I really like that approach because it's not a controlling approach. Like, we are the experts and you should and you should not. No, here's the data. Here's the information. Here's the evidence. And you get to make the choice. And, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. They're either going to make the right choices or they're going to make the wrong choices. But again, a lot of times that's subjective as it is. So mm-hmm. it's really an interesting approach to where we're not going to tell you how to do it. And, you know, we're not going to keep you within these constraints. But we're going to provide you with the information that you're able to make um, educated decisions on, on which yeah. direction that you choose to breed or not to breed, so to speak. Yeah, and support yep. in doing it, um, right? Oh, I just want to say that it's hard. Yeah. Some people want to breed that way, but they, they have difficulty doing it, right? And so one of the stories that brought me to start this group was the story of a golden retriever breeder who wanted to breed goldens who had lower incidences of cancer. And pretty much the only way to do it is to outcross and bring in another breed. But if she did that, no one was ever going to give her a good, a high-quality golden retriever, a healthy golden retriever, to breed to again. So that made it impossible for her to breed the way the Functional Dog Collaborative, the FDC, recommends that people breed. She can't do it within her breed. And I wanted to help bring people together to try to change that, to make it even possible, right? So we're talking about people making decisions about how to breed. But what if you make a decision you want to breed a particular way, but you can't? 
because there's these social structures set up to not let you do it. And that's what we're, we still are struggling to find ways around that, but um, that's one of them. Well, I think continuing the conversation will help. I mean, I, at least in my experience, um, breeders, just like rescuers, tend to be very, very opinionated, right? They get yes. set in their ways. Yes. They know their practice. You can't tell me otherwise. You can't tell me difference. This is the way it's done. And I think a lot of people just need to relax a little bit and realize that things change. New information comes in. We modernize. We, we evolve in our practices. And, and to just relax a little bit and be open to those conversations can only help. So, you know, I feel really bad for this person that you're talking about in regard to the golden retriever breed because I definitely would much prefer, yes, I love the beautiful glowing feathers of a golden retriever and their beautiful temperament and everything else, but to have a more um, behaviorally and healthful, healthfully sound dog is way up my list over the way that it looks, you know, how pretty it is or how teddy bear like it is. Um, and I think that, um, you know, because of the show world and how things look and we're kind of a vain species as it is, it's tough for people to get over that hump. You know, we, we pick the pretty, that's just what we do. But as we continue to open these conversations and make it less taboo, especially for breeders, um, I, I, I'm hoping that we'll kind of crack that a little bit, just kind of like we cracked the rescue side of things to where we're not, uh, you know, we hashtag everything adopt, don't shop, but we're not gonna go on Facebook and bash breeders, you know, and bash other yeah. people. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's not about that. It's about opening the conversation as opposed to being on one side of the fence or the other. So yeah. I'm, I'm optimistic, you know, <laughs> optimistic that we'll see that shift hopefully at some point, but yeah, I hope so. Yeah. And I do want to bring up too, it's, 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 um, you know, when we're looking at why we're breeding that, um, it, of course being a behavior consultant, maybe I'm biased in this, but being behavior forward, I think is so incredibly important. We look at things like health, you know, we're doing radiographs on their hearts and their hips to see how things are going. But, mm -hmm. um, I, I oftentimes come across people that, uh, it, at least in my practice that are like, but he's so beautiful. I just don't want to. And I'm like, you hired me because you're having behavioral problems with your mm -hmm. animal. And I think there's a genetic component there, but you want to breed <laughs> said mm -hmm. animal. Yes, he's beautiful. Yes, he's gorgeous. Please neuter him. <laughs> like, or if you don't yeah. neuter him, at least don't breed him. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that's a conversation shift as well to where we're looking, you know, not just at health and not just at looks, but are these animals really truly behaviorally sound as well? It's so important, and um, I think a lot of people have perceived that it's getting harder and harder to find a dog who fits comfortably into a pet home these yeah. days. And it, it's hard to know. I think that's really multifactorial, right? And a lot of it is that pet homes are getting more challenging. More of us are living in the city. More of us are working um, away from the home. But a, a lot of it also is that, you know, 50 years ago, we were there were a lot of dogs who were letting themselves out um, to run around the neighborhood all day and they were sort of free breeding and now that we're selecting for now that the responsible way to get a dog from a breeder is not to go to someone whose backyard dog has just happened to, breed, to be bred but to go to someone who's selecting for a lot of different things it's as you say it's really hard to select for behavior as well I mean you talk to breeders and they will say of course you know, a, a good, a good temperament is, is my number one priority, but they're fitting that into the model of yes, but even if it has a good temperament, but I wouldn't breed it if it had the wrong white markings, because that's incorrect for the breed, you know, or I wouldn't breed it if the head shape was wrong. So 
having all of those other things that they're selecting for in addition to being a good pet is you know it's not really possible to do it all at once yeah it's tough well and so i would ask you this then if if say um you know uh, a client smith comes into the veterinary practice and says I've got this great Labrador Retriever, you know, we're raising him, um, and I, I want to breed him. So this is just a regular companion owner, purchased this dog from a breeder, now is excited about it, excited about his dog. His breeder got him all pumped up because he's an awesome specimen, and he wants to breed his dog. Um, I know how you, this usually rolls out, but I want to hear your opinion on this, too. With, with what advice would you say that practitioner or that technician in the room that's talking mm. with this owner should should give this owner to help them kind of steer them on the right path instead of just becoming another kind of hobby breeder that isn't really necessarily contributing to anything? Yeah, it's it's so hard because I I feel like we don't have a good answer to that at this moment in the same way that when someone comes to me and says, I want to get a dog for my household where I have kids and a cat and and I want it to be I want to be really guaranteed it's going to be a good pet. I don't have a great answer for them today either. Um, traditionally or mainstream, what we would have said to that person is, you're probably not really ready to breed. You need to find a breed mentor. Um, you need to do something with the dog, be it go to confirmation shows or you know agility or it's a Labrador retriever, so maybe uh, field titles. <laughs> um, hmm. You know, and we would have said, get yourself involved in the Labrador Retriever Club and really immerse yourself in all of that and really, you know, dig into it and learn all about Labrador Retrievers for years before considering breeding. Um, but that has taken us down the road of breeding more and more for things other than good pets. And what this person has is a good pet, right? And should we let those good pets go? But on the other hand, should the veterinarians be saying, well, you have a healthy dog who's a good pet. Yeah, he needs to be bred. Go forth and do it. That's not the right answer either because there is a lot of work and thought that has to be put into there. What we are trying um, to put together through the FTC as an answer to this problem is what we call breeding cooperatives. Um, we're working on our first one right now. It is still um, taking its very first baby steps and not ready for prime time. But I'll tell you what I'm hoping it's going to look like. Um, what it would look like is um, that there would be uh, a group of people who have a particular goal in breeding. And that may not be to breed a particular breed. It may be to breed good pet dogs. It may be to breed good sports dogs. Um, but so, and then there could be a breeding cooperative for small pet dogs, big pet dogs, high energy pet dogs, low energy pet dogs, right? Um, this first one is just sort of, pet dogs, because <laughs> that's, that's all we have their breeders for right now. Um, so then I would refer this person, you know, so the veterinarian would say, well, go find a, a breeding co-op for pet dogs that is sort of, that you feel comfortable with, that is, that is for your type of dog. This person would then go connect with them and say, I have a dog, he's awesome, I want to breed him. And the co-op would say, well, come join us and we'll help you. And they would do a lot of the mentoring work that this person certainly would require. They would help uh, him figure out, well, what are the tests that you should do on your dog? You should check his hips and make sure that his hips are good. You should wait until he's four years old. Um, you should do some genetic testing. You know, just what are all the, the tests that you should do? Help talk through, is this really a good breeding prospect or not? Okay, he is a good breeding prospect. Now, how are we going to find you someone to breed him to? Do you want to breed to another purebred Labrador Retriever? Here are the issues with that, but here's where you can go if you want to do that. 
do you want to breed them to something else and um, you know contribute to some mixed breed dogs that we're creating uh, maybe there's some other people in the cooperative who are looking for a stud right now and you guys can get together and they will help you work through what you want to create and they'll provide you with the support so that's that's how I envision that as a really supportive group of people with common cause who will take newbies under their wing and help them go forward and in such a way that this really good pet dog is not lost to the world because he can't he doesn't have the confirmation to get a show championship or because his owner doesn't want to put a show championship on him that's a lot of money and effort if you don't enjoy it maybe his owner doesn't want to go do field trials with him um, maybe the dog is a good pet and a good jogging companion and that's that's what his owner wants and there's other people out there who want that too so well, that's, that's the vision yeah that's <laughs> what a fantastic resource but what I love more than anything is that you're highlighting pet dogs. And I'll tell you one of the biggest problems that I see as a behavior consultant, and I, I share this sentiment with others, we've discussed it before, is that people buy a dog and have zero idea what they're getting into. They're not going out looking for pet dogs. I, I can't tell you how many German Shepherds that I've worked with because um, and, and none of my recent clients, so if any of my recent clients are watching this, I'm not talking about you, <laughs> um, but I, I've, I've worked with German Shepherd after German Shepherd after German Shepherd that, um, and Malinois, I've worked with a lot of Malinois too, that mm -hmm. they, they're, they're buying this dog for a specific reason because they think this is what they want and they're buying it because they want a family companion and these lines are not family companion dogs. Mm -hmm. These are working dogs and boy, do they wear their owners out and wow, do they have some frustrating behaviors and, you know, we all see all these different aggressive tendencies, but I say all this because I don't re I don't think a lot of people realize that, that what they really truly want is a good pet dog, a good family mm -hmm. companion. You've got your sports people, you've got your show people, but those people are very specific. The average U.S. household, um, you know, we're not looking at working trials, field trials, um, you know, going into bite protection work and things like that. So um, I kind of like that a lot to where it's this shift, like, no, what, what most people are looking for is a pet dog. There are plenty of breeders out there that you can select working lines from, or you can select specific hunting type dogs from, but you know, here's this, here's this resource to where if what you want is a pet dog, here's how we can continue building really good family companions that fit into our lives socially and without stressing the animal out and stressing the owner out because you know, there isn't that background education on where they're, where they're coming from or what they're truly bred for. There are a lot of dogs yeah. that are still really bred for jobs. You know, not being yeah, a totally. So yeah, or, we, oh. we with the the breeds, we all all the breeds have the story about what they were bred for, and mm -hmm. we love those stories, right? And so with a German Shepherd, and there's there's just I mean they're beautiful dogs, and you see them on TV, and they have you know the the story about them being good protection animals, and you think that's that's what I want because those are the stories that are out there. For us, there aren't stories out there about, hey, here's how we make things that are good pets. Don't you want a good pet? Right? That's not the story that's that's being offered to us. Um, it's not nearly as sexy to watch that. You're it's like, not, oh, look what this dog can do. I want one of those. Sexy. Yeah. And then you get it. It's home not as sexy. Right. Um, interestingly, I would say that it's actually the poodle cross breeders who are aiming at the, the pet market the most right now. And I, I say market advisedly recognizing there are a lot of doodle breeders who really are breeding just uh, sort of really mainly for profit without a lot of thoughtfulness about the dogs. Um, that happens when there's a lot of demand for something. As it happens, there's a lot of really competent ones as well. Um, and I've started 
been very lucky to meet quite a few of them through the FDC um, who really are breeding very thoughtfully. And these are the people who are sitting down and saying, what do people want as a pet dog? And a lot of people want a low shedding dog. Yeah. So how do I make a dog that has that lovely retriever personality, um, you know, is, is a specific size and is low shed? That is a retriever crossed with a poodle. Um, and people are multi-generations into this, not just that first generation retriever poodle, um, but multi-generations into it and breeding these really nice dogs. Um, and it, it has started to really frustrate me to see all doodle breeders tarred with the same brush. People saying, you know, doodle, you know, they're, they're all irresponsibly bred. It's just for this hysteria that people that, you know, there's owners out there thinking that doodles the, are the sexy new thing and that's what they want. Uh, what people want are good pets who don't shed a whole lot. And I think that's kind of reasonable, honestly. Oh, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, why can't you have what you want in a dog and a companion? In, you know, yeah, to a, to a reasonable extent, right? To a yeah. reasonable extent. Um, and that sometimes there's things that we want that aren't reasonable, like having a dog with a completely flat face who can't yes. breathe because um, we really like the look of that, the ultra, ultra flat face. Um, but in the case of a low shedding dog, it's really not, not that big a deal. And I think there's some reasonable frustration among the responsible breeders who see a lot of irresponsible doodle breeding going on. Um, But then it's also a lot of responsible doodle breeders who are trying to do better and are having real challenges doing it. They are trying to actually do things like go put titles on their dogs, go compete in sports events, and they are finding themselves met with hostility there. Um, They are trying to work with veterinarians and have good advice about breeding and finding that veterinarians are being hostile to them because they aren't breeding purebreds. Um, And so it's one of the approaches that we take in the FDC is if someone wants to do better, we help them. Even if they aren't doing what we want them to do right now, if they come to us asking for help, we try to, we try to give it. Um, We try to push everyone in the, in the right direction. Yeah, and I think that is a really great way to approach it, to be very open-minded like that. And not that it's an excuse, because it's really not, um, but I, I always give the benefit of the doubt to veterinarians and their vet staff. I feel like they're they're really drugged through the mud sometimes. But um, I think because of how many poor representations of some of the crossbreeds that they're seeing, mm-hmm. some of the, the doodle breeders in particular, like they're very popular, especially in this area where I'm at now. I see them all the time, golden doodles and... Um, schnoodles and everything with poodle you can think of. And there are some really poor representatives, at least from a behavior perspective. Um, health, I haven't seen quite as much, but I, I think that um, oftentimes they're seeing um, dog after dog after dog that has been mixed that is coming in with you know behavior problem after behavior problem. And it gets really frustrating because they see so many of them. And I think that um, a lot of these veterinarians and supporting staff would very much be behind breeders that are doing things responsibly. It's just that of the given population that they're seeing come through the hospital or the clinics, the majority of them are not. I mean, there is a you know a decent amount per se, but they see so many that are just backyard bred because it is the new hot item, and, and that's really frustrating. Again, not an excuse. I think opening that conversation and having patience, um, having self-care first so that you have the ability to do that with your clients um, is so important. No, that's I, I wanna... reasonable, and I wonder if there's things we could do about it too, right? Like, could we say... Um, maybe the FTC could put together a template where somebody filled out um, some explanations indicating that they are a responsible breeder that they could give to their veterinarian up front, yeah. demonstrating this is where I'm coming from with my breeding program. I'll send this to you ahead of time. 
let you read it, and then you'll know when I come in what to expect. Um, if that became something that veterinarians came to expect, it might be helpful. I think that'd be a breath of fresh air to them, probably. They yeah. know what they're getting into. They know what to, they don't have to worry about the the age-old spiel of, well, your dog wasn't really appropriately bred. So here are the problems that we're facing because of that, you know? Yes. Just seeing that up front and being like, oh, okay, no. They had support. They're trying to do the responsible thing. This is good. I can have this conversation with them instead. Yes. So, um so I want to ask you, especially about um, with with mixing breeds and breeding mixed breed dogs in particular, is you know we've always kind of had this you know motto that mutts are the toughest; they live the longest. You know, it's the, the shelter mutt that always reigns supreme over all of the these genetic issues that purebred dogs see. But um, someone brought it to my attention once that that there's a huge concern for um, breeding these crossbred dogs or these these mixed breed dogs with the same mixed breed dogs. And now all of a sudden you're starting to breed back in the purebred problems that you were trying to breed out in the first place. So how do you kind of avoid that? Because mutts are great, right? You are kind of getting the best of both worlds at times, but when is too much, when is it too much? And how do you know where to stop that line versus continue breeding them in? Mm -hmm. I think it's exactly the same question as breeding purebreds. So when would you stop breeding a golden to a golden? because you have the issue of um, purebred related health issues. So I think there's a couple things you can do. You can and should be monitoring the puppies that you produce. You should be staying in touch with the owners that you place them with. And if you start hearing that they are having health problems, that is, I mean, that is something that breeders should be working with and thinking about constantly. Um, and you should be thinking about genetic diversity. So. Be aware of um, different ways of measuring genetic diversity. Um, measure it with a genetic test, not with a pedigree. Um, mm -hmm. Be aware of what the sort of average level of genetic diversity by whatever test you choose is in the, the two breeds that you're crossing. Um, and then where that first generation of mixed breed pups come out to, right, should be much lower. And then as you're starting to, as I said, there's, there's doodle breeders doing this, these multi-generation, um, starting to, to breed in, um, not just crossing the two, trying not to use all the genetic terminology, <laughs> but not crossing the two different breeds um, every time, but having, you know, breeding mutts together, as you said. Um, keep measuring the genetic diversity. And if you start seeing it creep, uh, well, the number is, is high for inbreeding, but if you start seeing the diversity dropping again, then it's time to start thinking about, you know, do I want to start bringing in yet another breed? Okay. Um, well, and where, where, what are some examples of some of these good genetic tests that you would say to where you can um, get a good feel for their genetic diversity? Do you mm -hmm. have ones that you specifically utilize, ones that you should stay away from? Um, the one that I prefer currently is Embark. It's from Embark. Um, they use a yeah. technology. Yeah, they use a technology that lets you look uh, pretty widely across the genome so that there aren't big gaps that you're just not seeing. Um, and they have something that they call, uh, they, they test coefficient of inbreeding. So mm -hmm. um, COI. And the way that one works is it basically goes zero to a hundred. So um, zero COI would mean that there's no, basically nowhere in your history is is anyone duplicated? There's no there's no inbreeding. There's no relatives being mated mated to each other. A hundred percent COI you don't really see in real life, 
but it would mean that you have no diversity in your DNA at all. You know how we all get a copy from our mom and a copy from our dad. Um, it mm -hmm. would be that mom and dad were completely genetically identical and then were bred to each other. Um, so it doesn't really happen in real life, but that's as you start getting closer and closer to a hundred, that's where it's a problem. Um, if you look at zoos that maintain populations of species, you know, where they have a small number of animals and they have to swap around to other zoos to keep diversity up, right around 10% is the line that they aim to stay under. They like staying under 10%. So that just sort of gives you, like, there's no black and white line, right? There's no point at which, okay, now we're going to start seeing cancer. Now we're going to start seeing autoimmune disease. Um, it's only about increasing risk. Sometimes okay. you get lucky and sometimes you get unlucky. But 10% is the line that the zoos have sort of arbitrarily chosen as if we stay under there, we have a pretty good chance of, of being healthy. Um, purebred dogs, average, crossbreeds, 20%. Oh, okay. Um, and then if you start looking at some of the breeds with much higher coefficients of inbreeding, um, you'll see some up in the like mid-40s. Okay. Which for me, when I first saw a dog with a 43% COI, I was like, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't know there were animals walking around like that. Um, so, um, and so then when you, when you cross two breeds that come from very different lineages, right, you can get puppies that have like zero or 1%, um, but it's hard to stay there um, and have any sort of, so the, the trade-off, right, is if you have, if you are around zero, 2%, um, you're, you're a lot less likely to see genetic disease, mm -hmm. but you're also not going to see any predictability at all, pretty much in the animals that you create. So you're not going to have any real idea of that generation of what the size is going to be or the color is going to be. I'm generalizing here, but the predictability is very low. We like predictability. That's why we go to go to golden retrievers. Right. We like knowing I want to say like, well, I want a dog of about this size and this type of personality. And I really like long hair. Um, so we want some amount of predictability. But then as we keep going down the road of, OK, well, I have now made the perfect golden retriever. So I'm just going to keep breeding just the perfect golden retrievers to each other. Your predictability becomes very high um, just as your risk of health disease starts of health of genetic disease starts going up and up. Um, is there and an so average again, of generations for that typically or no? Say, say again? Is there an average of generations where you start to oh, see that decline? Um, that's a really interesting question. I, I haven't seen any research looking into that. It really depends. So if you're talking about the speed at which the genetic diversity changes, there's mathematics for that, right? Of like, you, if you were to take two completely unrelated populations and then start breeding relatives to each other. There's mathematics in which you'd be able to predict what you were getting diversity wise, but you can't predict what you're going to get health wise. It really entirely depends on those first two that you start with. Um, and the, the best way of thinking about that is actually in research labs, scientists breed lines of mice to be very, very inbred because predictability in research mice is very, very important. And health is less important because they're not gonna live for all that long anyways. Um, and the experiences that they have is that as they start to breed these lines to be extremely inbred, the animals start becoming very unhealthy, like too unhealthy to be worthwhile maintaining them. Every so often they happen to get a line that does well, even though it's extremely inbred, 
and then they go forward with that line. And so there are specific lines of mice that took a while to develop that have known but manageable problems. And you can go out there and buy, you know, whatever this particular, you know, they have designations and I'm going to go buy this designation of this highly inbred line of mice. And so people will sometimes point and say these are incredibly inbred lines and look, that's okay. So why is it not okay in dogs? And the answer is you're not seeing all the other lines that had to be discarded to get here. And we're not willing to discard lines of dogs like that. No, absolutely not. It puts it in a completely different perspective. So it's, it's hard to predict, right? It's hard to predict. And you can have a dog with a really high COI and the dog turns out to be healthy and lives a long time. It's just, it's about risk. And so sometimes there was an election here in 2016 and we were told that a particular candidate was at a 70% chance of winning. And we all assumed that that candidate was definitely going to win because she had a 70% chance of winning. The other candidate won. 30% happens sometimes right? That's true. You know, a lot of people were angry. They said we were told that we had a 70% chance of winning. That meant we were going to win. No, it meant you were likely to win. Um, and so I think that's the way to look at it with risk is if you have these highly inbred dogs, yes, you might very well have a very healthy one who does very well for a long time, but you got lucky in that case. Your, your, your risk was high. You just avoided it. Yeah, see, I love that argument you just went through because in um, working through my nonprofit organization, we spent a lot of time trying to convince people that um, the pit bull terriers that we pulled from dogfight rings were not all going to be aggressive, you know, animal killing, you know, baby eating <laughs> dogs because we, we, we would present them with a very dumped down layman's terms, uh, genetic conversation that you can have this dog from this country that's incredibly dog aggressive and you can breed it with this dog from this country as often a lot of these dogs are imported and it can be incredibly dog aggressive you put them together and you might get one or two in the litter that are extremely dog aggressive and the rest of them are just you know happy and fine with us some like cats some don't some want to eat birds some have birds living in the same house with them and they're fine so that was a conversation that we always used kind of in the opposite format, the flip format to, to talk to people and teach people that there's such a high level of unpredictability, even with the selectivity that we're, we're presenting yes. and putting these animals together. So, um, but yeah. as far as breeding goes, aside from the genetic components, so aside from, um, the testing that, that can be done, um, I'll also put a link to Embark below. I love them too. Um, for people that like to, to, to send that out and see what their dogs are made of. They have a health profile as well that I really like, but are there other indicators to look for? Are they kind of more myths? So for example, litter size, you know, one of the things that um, I always thought was kind of an indicator is if your litter size is starting to decrease and you might lose zero puppies the first time, one puppy the second time, two puppies the next, and your litters are getting smaller, that's a good indicator that you shouldn't be breeding your dog. I mean, are, is that a an actual true scientific indicator as well? Or is that just kind of a, an old wives tale? There's actually a paper that came out showing it. Um, it's out of the, I think it came out of the data from the golden retriever lifetime study. Um, but looking at golden retrievers and looking at litter size and comparing genetic diversity to litter size. And they actually showed that as genetic diversity goes down, litter size goes down as well. So that's, that's actually true. Interesting. And is that, I mean, would, would you say then that that's also linked to potential health issues and health risks or other yeah, problems? For sure. It's all, it's all. It's all similar all stuff. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and again, it's a risk. It's again, it's a risk, right? So your litter size might be huge with a highly inbred litter. Um, 
It might be. And it's just less that. likely to be. Gotcha. Interesting. Well, I do want to spend a minute because um, uh, you brought it to my attention that you're working with Darwin's working dog profiles. And I found a huge interest in this because um, side agenda, I, I train service dogs for veterans with PTSD, but we use rescue dogs for it. So when it comes to selectivity, we don't have it. <laughs> There's, we don't know the lines. We don't know the breeds. These aren't dogs that were bred for this generation to generation. So I was really interested to hear about this project and I was hoping that you could share a little bit of information about it um, because, you know, a lot of veterinary practices see working dogs coming in and out, whether they're well-bred, whether they're not, whether they're well-selected, well-trained. I mean, it's, it's kind of a huge mishmash, but I think this is something that is going to be really um, instrumental in, in helping with organizations that do things kind of like we do to where we take these dogs from the sheltering system where we don't have a genetic history. We don't know their mom and dad. All we have is a temperament. We have this snapshot in history of their behavior under very specific circumstances. So can you tell me a little bit about the genetic technology behind kind of this project with these working dogs? Yeah, so it's called the Working Dog Project. Um, the goal is to identify the genetic variants that are associated with particular personality traits that make dogs better suited to, for particular jobs. Um, we are starting out working with guide dogs and service dogs and are hoping to expand to more types of working dogs, like all types of working dogs, eventually. Um, so right now working with guide dog groups we are working with groups that are breeding dogs and trying to so so that everyone would really like a genetic test where you put in the dna into the machine and it spits out this answer this dog is going to be a great service dog right and behavior is very complicated there are a whole lot of genes that affect it environment affects it as well so there's never going to be a test that's going to tell you definitely yes or no for a particular dog, either for breeding a dog or for pulling a dog from a shelter. Um, what it will give you, possibly, if we if we get there, uh, or what our goal is, would be a test that gives you, well, again, I'm going to talk about risk. So this dog is more likely to make a good service dog. Um, so I think the way that would look for you is rather than going, it isn't like you would go to a shelter, test the dog and say, okay, done, I'm definitely taking this dog because we did so well on the test. It looks more like you'd go to the shelter, you'd test 20 dogs, you'd also behaviorally test to get to know the 20 dogs. And then you would get back the information from what you knew about the dogs from interacting with them. And you'd also get back the genetic results. And the genetic results maybe would help you sort of like rank the dogs. And so you'd say, okay, I can take in five of these 20. And here's my top 10 and here's the genetic top 10 and they overlap with these five. So those are the five I'm going to take. So that's probably going to be the level at which it'll boots on the ground, help people selecting their dogs. Um, we are hoping that it's, I mean, it's, it can help in a, in a lot of ways with breeding to start pushing breeding populations in the direction that, that the breeders want them to go. Um, you know, so like more resilience, more confidence in, perhaps in a guide dog population. Um, the other hope is that we will use this information to start understanding more about how the brain works. So, you know, how can we understand better about dogs who've gone through the trauma of losing their home and still come out being a confident, solid, resilient, um, working dog, even though they went through, you know, lost their home, went through a shelter, still able to come back and be a good working dog. 
what is it in the brain that is different from the dog that goes through exactly the same experience and comes out a nervous mess. Um, so that's what we'd really like to understand. And if we could, uh, well, then our job is done, but then we hand it off to people who could helpfully, who could hopefully start doing things like understanding how to treat anxiety better, um, understanding, you know, how to help puppies or children grow up better to be more confident and resilient individuals as adults. So that's, that's sort of the, the full picture of what the, the project hopes to do. Well, I think from a resource perspective, that's going to be really helpful because even though you're talking about risk factor as well, right now, all we have is our temperament snapshot, essentially. So adding in that genetic component, that overlap to say, hey, these dogs might be more likely to be successful and putting those two tools together can help save a lot financially because it's very expensive to kind of raise and train these animals, even rescued animals, not necessarily purchased, you know, bred dogs. So being able to kind of make those calls earlier to, you know, are we going to wash this animal out based on these results or are we going to continue this process because, you know, this dog selected or, or, or tested high in both of these categories. This dog, you know, tested high in the temperament category, but look at this, you know, look at this genetic test that came back, you know, what are we dealing with? We're, we're most likely going to put our resource in three of these dogs up here than five of these dogs down here, so to yeah. speak. So I think that'll be a... a pretty instrumental tool. That's, that's great. I hope so. I, I caution people not to put too much faith in genetic tests of personality. Um, personality is still, it's a very squishy topic and something that we don't understand the biology of very well at all yet. Um, so it's, it's, it's a place that as researchers, we're really just starting to understand how to approach it and, and what we can do with the, the tools that we have. So it's, we're still a ways from making really solid, useful tools. Um, but the working dog project is really helping us get there. So, yeah, I think it's important for everybody to know that there aren't any silver bullets. You know, people always look for silver bullets and behavior with, Oh, if I put my dog on Prozac, it'll be great. Oh, if the dog, you know, checks yeah. these boxes, it'll be a great working dog. Like it's one of many tools in the toolbox to kind of make those determinations really. So, and yeah, um, the Darwin's, the Darwin's project too, um, from what I, from, from what I read, I think this was kind of interesting. It might be something for veterinarians and veterinary staff to involve their clients in. They're also doing a project from my understanding as well to um, incorporate just general everyday citizens into some of the um, genetic profiling or trying to gather some data. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So that's uh, Darwin's Ark and it's at darwinsark.org. And we do encourage people to come sign their dogs up. We ask a whole lot of questions about the dog's behavior. You don't have to answer all of them, um, but they are kind of fun, actually. I've, I've seen people just go and just answer them all in one night. I would. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so just answering the surveys, just doing that alone is super helpful to us. Um, right now, we are working on a paper looking at behavioral differences between breeds um, and how much of that is stories that we tell ourselves and how much of that is, is really real. Um, we do, uh, we are between funding, um, opportunities right now, um, but looking at some stuff for the future. And so when we have funding, we then, um, send out DNA sample kits to people so they can swab their dog's mouths, send us back saliva, and we use that to get DNA and do genetics research. So again, exactly what we've been talking about looking at relationships between what we see in the DNA 
and what the dog's behavior is. Um, so as I said, I, we are between funding sources right now. So that um, sending those kits out is not happening at the moment. Um, and so I encourage people to go with the intention of filling out the surveys, which is super, super helpful. And they can sign up to be notified uh, if and when there is more funding to do more DNA sequencing of dogs. If they've had a um, genetic test done, like through Embark or the Wisdom Panel or something like that, and they choose to fill out the survey, is it helpful for you to get a copy of that as well? Not. It turns out not. Um, although Embark, I said, covers a lot of the genome, they're they're doing it. Um, they have a different goal than we do, and because our goal is research, we cover a whole lot more. So Embark looks at upwards of 200,000 locations in the genome, and we look at closer to 10 million. Wow. So if you hand us the 200,000, it doesn't fit in with the rest of our, our research all that well. We wish it, it did, because that would be super useful. Yeah. Um, but uh, as it turns out, no. No, not so much. So just fill out the yeah. form for now and stay posted yeah, to yeah. see when- Answer, answer the questions and uh, get on the mailing list. Yeah, and definitely check out the Facebook page. Um, Dr. Heckman, I've taken up a ton of your time, so I apologize, but this is an incredible no worries, this is topic. Fun. Genetics is always amazing to me. Um, I won't tell you what grade I got in genetics in college because it's embarrassing, but I will tell you that it's one of those classes that I learned more than almost any of the other classes that I took mm -hmm. uh, in college. So it's, it's pretty interesting to, to get a not so great grade and still learn more than you have in most of your classes. Um, but before we go, is there any information that you want to give to anyone that's in the veterinary field or even um, the behavior professional field as a way to continue their education or things that they should know, some, some really mm. good resources for more people that are interested in learning uh, more about the genetic side of things in particular? Yeah. Um, well, actually, I can get you. You're going to have show notes, right? So I can get you yeah. some links to some stuff. Absolutely. There are actually, so these days there are some really good free online genetics courses. Oh. Um, so if you want to have, and I have people coming to me sometimes saying like, I just, I just want to know more about genetics. Like I, you know, I forgot what I learned from college or I, you know, I want to brush up. Um, there are some good courses and I'm happy to provide you links to one or two. And those would be good places for people to start. The um, my favorite is I think it's called Useful Genetics from Rosie Redfield, um, and I can get you a link to that. Yes, um, but she has, cool. yeah, she has a great series of videos and readings, and um, it's it's pretty in depth. Um, so it really is pretty similar to uh, what you would get from a college college freshman biology course in genetics. Actually, the other the other thing that I should recommend, I'll get you a link to it as well. Um, my hero, Robert Sapolsky, I always just call him my hero, Robert Sapolsky. Robert <laughs> That's Sapolsky. his name. <laughs> That's his name is my hero, Robert Sapolsky. He is um, a famous professor of endocrinology hormones at Stanford and a fabulous writer and lecturer. Very, very engaging. You can just Google Sapolsky on YouTube and get some amazing stuff. Um, he doesn't do genetics. He does hormones, but it's still for behavior. Very, very interesting stuff. Um, yeah. He put his entire behavioral biology course onto YouTube from a couple of years ago. I want oh, to say it was like kidding. 2009. Yeah. So if someone just came in and filmed him lecturing at Stanford, uh, behavioral biology, and that whole thing is on YouTube. And so there's a genetic section, but there's sections about hormones and neurobiology. And it's a really good basic college intro to thinking about the biology of behavior. So I would, that would be my other big recommendation. 
That's an excellent resource. I really appreciate that. That's going to be, that's going to be replacing my, my latest um, Netflix episodes. <laughs> yes. Learning. For sure. Or, um, or just listen to them as you're falling asleep at night. Sometimes. <laughs> can also all in. I used to do that in college. Yeah. I just listen to my lecture notes over again as I'm falling asleep. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, perfect. Yes. If you provide those links, I will definitely put those in the show notes. And so that those, so everyone can have really easy access to that. I think that's a fantastic resource resource. Um, so for everyone that's listening, please be sure to check out the functional dog collaborative, a lot of great information, join the Facebook page, especially if you want to engage in conversation and learn a little bit more about the breeding side of things. And be sure to also check out the website for the Darwin's Ark citizen science project, a lot of really cool stuff going on there. Um, I'll put all that information below as well. And uh, just thank you so much, Dr. Heckman. I really enjoyed this conversation and hopefully we'll get to hear more from you in the future as well. Um, if anyone has any questions, please feel free to pop those in the comments below as well. I'll do the best I can to answer those. If I am not qualified to answer those, I might um, <laughs> Dr. Heckman here and there to, uh, to, to help us out a little bit, but be sure to drop your questions if you have them. And thanks everyone so much for watching. This was fun. Thank you.